0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. Today, we are finishing up our segment on attachment styles and high-demand religion. We've gotten to explore secure attachment, anxious attachment, which is you know that desire to be in a relationship with someone because we don't feel safe or secure by ourselves. We feel more calm when we're in relationship with other people. And we kind of enjoy that process of, you know, pleasing or pouring ourselves into someone else. It gives us a sense of identity when we meld a little bit with someone else. We also got to talk about avoidant attachment. These are the people that like to rely on themselves solely for the things that they need. And they enjoy other people, but they don't allow themselves to really rely on other people. That feels really scary for them. And today we're talking about disorganized attachment, which can feel really, really kind of confusing because it's a mixture of both that anxious attachment style that wants that closeness and connection and support, but also that avoidant style that fears that deep intimacy and feels the need to distance themselves from it at the same time. And so as you can imagine... The reason it's called disorganized attachment is because those two things feel like they're at war with each other inside of ourselves. This need for closeness, this need for connection, and also this fierce need for independence and not to have to rely on someone. And so we kind of go back and forth between I want to be close. No, I don't want to be close. And it can feel really chaotic inside of ourselves and for the people we're in relationship with. At the heart of disorganized or fearful avoidant attachment is really a negative view of ourselves that maybe we're not worthy of healthy relationships or that we're not good enough, kind of like the anxious attachment style, but also a negative view of other people that we can't trust other people to meet our needs, that other people might not care about us, And that they can be scary sometimes, that being in relationship with other people is a really scary thing, just like the avoidant attachment style. And so they kind of get the worst of both worlds. And it's probably the most complicated attachment style for us to talk about on this episode, because while there are some patterns that are kind of similar throughout all fearful avoidance. It is so incredibly unique to the person experiencing it because it's a cocktail of part anxious attachment and part avoidant attachment, and it can show up in different ways in different people, and it can even change according to the situation. In fact, Thais Gibson of the Personal Development School, she identifies five different common subtypes of fearful avoidant attachment. And I'm not going to get into all of that in this episode because I think it's been confusing enough for some of us just getting acquainted with the four main styles of attachment. So just know as we're talking about this that attachment is highly individualized and that if you find yourself relating with some of the things in this attachment style, it's just something to get curious with. You don't have to label yourself or box yourself and you can just get curious about the parts that resonate. If a label helps you understand yourself and feel compassion for your experience, use it. If it makes you feel limited or like you can't fully express yourself, ditch it. So talking about attachment styles isn't meant to be an identity for you. It's only another way to understand your experience and help you start becoming conscious about how you're showing up in your relationships and why. And it's also going to help you understand why certain patterns repeat over and over again. And so this is just a chance for us to get curious about what our part might be. What are the beliefs that are underneath our relationships? What do we believe about other people? What do we believe about ourselves? What do we believe about how relationships should go? What does love look like? What does connection look like? What thoughts And emotions does this lead to? So, this underlying belief, what thoughts do I often have in relationships? And what emotions do those thoughts bring up in me? And then, what are some of my actions that I normally take in relationships? It's just a chance for us to get curious and to notice these patterns so that we can bring them up into consciousness where we can work with them and we can reprogram them if we would like. So, If you notice, like, this always happens in my relationships, this certain pattern continues to repeat itself, it's likely that there is a piece inside of us that is contributing to that. And again, this is if there's a pattern, okay? So we can have a really awful relationship or a really bad outcome in one or two relationships, and that does not make it a pattern. But if this is continuing to happen with people in our family, our romantic relationships, our friendships, even with our work relationships, there might be something for us to get curious about inside of ourselves. And if you identify with fearful avoidance, as we're talking about this today, or if you identified with anxious attachment, there's probably a piece of you that really doesn't want to look at your part because it brings up that sense of shame that might be inside of you or that sense of low self-worth that's inside of you. But understand that the more we can get conscious about the ways we're contributing, the more power we give ourselves to change the outcomes. And the patterns you're engaging in do not make you a bad person. It does not make you toxic. It does not make you unworthy of love. You develop these patterns when you were A very young child. In fact, they show that attachment patterns develop between the age of zero and two years old. And we were wired to create these patterns for survival because we needed our caretakers to take care of us. We needed them to feed us, to clothe us, to shelter us, to hug us. We needed that connection and we learned patterns in order to get our needs met. You have these patterns, not because you're broken or toxic, but because you are a brilliant, adaptable human who found a way even before you were verbal to get your needs met and to negotiate relationships in the world. And if it's not serving you, if you're getting outcomes you don't like, the cool thing is is you have a brain that is very plastic that can learn and reprogram itself at any time. And as we continue to practice the new program, the old programs die away from disuse. So there is nothing wrong with you, no matter which attachment style you have. It's not like you're only worthy if you have secure attachment. You are worthy regardless of your attachment style. It makes sense that you approach relationships the way you do, considering what you went through. And you get to change it if you want to. You have that power. So, getting curious with these things, bringing them up into consciousness gives you power in your life to get more of the closeness and the relationships and the security and the sense of independence that you want in your relationships. Now, with that in mind, what causes disorganized attachment? We're going to go back to this little kid part of us back when we were between the ages of zero and two years old and we likely had caregivers that provided a chaotic atmosphere. And it's usually an atmosphere that's influenced by trauma. So either the chaotic way the caregiver showed up created trauma for us as the child, or the parent's own trauma is passed on intergenerationally, either through their actions and our responses. And there is some like research that's showing that that trauma can be passed on genetically or epigenetically. Sometimes there's even emotional, physical, or sexual abuse associated with the childhood environments for those with disorganized or fearful avoidant styles of attachment, but that does not have to be the case. So if you had a caregiver that had a really chaotic childhood of their own or a really traumatic childhood, they might have disorganized attachment. And this can lead them and they weren't taught effective emotional regulation strategies because those with disorganized attachment ricochet between anxious attachment and avoidant attachment behaviors. They can send mixed messages to those they love so they can swing wildly between being very logical and accountability taking to being very emotional and even blaming others for their own behavior. This often feels confusing, not just to the adult themselves, like your parent, if this was how they were acting, it felt confusing to themselves because in the moment when they were really emotional, it did feel like everything was other people's fault and they were a victim of their circumstances. And then when they swung back into their more avoidant behaviors, they felt wholly responsible for their emotions and behavior and like other people's emotions shouldn't be affecting them. And they felt hugely accountable and maybe overtook responsibility for things going on in their life. And so they swung wildly between these two polar opposites. And it felt probably very hot and cold. You never knew if you were getting the warm loving parent or if you were getting the cold detached parent. You didn't know if you were getting the emotionally dysregulated parent that maybe threw things and screamed and yelled or was involved in really impulsive, scary behaviors. Or if you were getting the parent that was going to be logical, but not warm so much anymore, they were more detached and kind of cut the cord between the two of you emotionally for a little while. And we call this like swinging between activation. So activation is that Desire to connect, it is activated by emotions and the desire to disconnect to protect yourself, which is deactivating from your emotions and from your need to connect to other humans. And so, these parents that had fearful avoidant attachment style themselves because of their own chaotic childhoods or because of their own childhood trauma, they swing back and forth between hot and cold, between Activated or deactivated. And some people, even like FAs themselves, will describe this as kind of a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde kind of a feeling. And I want to remind you that this is a generalization, there are types of fearful avoidance that actually look very put together on the outside. They keep everything very internalized, so they might swing wildly between these feelings inside of themselves, but don't allow that to show on the surface very much. They may seem very calm and collected on the surface because they've learned to mask those things, which I find would be really easy to do in high-demand religion, where there are certain sets of behavior and words and emotions that are allowed and not allowed. So if you had a parent that seemed very calm and collected, but it felt like they were sometimes very, very connected to you and warm and loving, but other times like really aloof and cold and unreachable. And if there was like some passive aggression and some control and manipulation happening, you could still have had a parent with F.A. or you may still be experiencing F.A., Even if that doesn't necessarily show on the outside very overtly, it can be a very internal process of swinging wildly between really wanting to connect to others and feeling this desire for intimacy, but being scared to death of it as well. And feeling like if you get intimate with someone that you're going to lose your identity or that they're going to like swallow you whole. This kind of parenting can also happen if the caregiver has CPTSD or PTSD, When a person has CPTSD, they can become easily triggered, even by the people that they love the most. This can be true as a parent. So something your child says or does can trigger an emotional response that has nothing to do with the child and everything to do with your past. Without support to work through the trauma, this can create a chaotic environment that can feel scary to the child. They never know when the adult mom or dad is online. Or when their inner child that was traumatized will be triggered by something that they do or say. And it doesn't make sense to the child because what's happening in the present may not logically feel like it warrants the emotional response coming from the parent. And it doesn't really make sense to you why it happens. Like one moment we're laughing and literally the next moment someone's screaming, throwing plates, stomping around the house, slamming doors or or getting physically or verbally or emotionally violent. Now we've talked a lot about how religious trauma is a lot like CPTSD. So if you're coming from a family that has a long history of being in a high demand religion, where their identity is suppressed, where there's high control, where there's emotional control and thought control and behavioral control, it makes sense that your parent might have reacted in a fearful avoidant way. Now, not everybody that comes from a high demand religion is going to experience the same trauma or have a fearful avoidant style, but there are higher instances in systems where narcissistic abuse is more likely or where control is exerted through fear and shame and where your personal autonomy is taken away. So if your parent was one that did experience trauma because of these things, they may have been triggered throughout your childhood, which made you feel confused about your safety and your connection with them. Another thing that may have created this chaotic lifestyle in your home as a child might have been personality disorders or like wildly swinging mental health Struggles. So, this could be personality disorders like borderline personality disorder or narcissistic personality disorder, but it could also be things like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. Things like this can make it feel like you never know which parent you're going to get. Now, children raised in households headed by one or two family members with personality disorders really do kind of find themselves in this terrible predicament of needing to rely on someone. Because remember, we're talking about a child that's zero to two years old when we're developing these styles. We have to rely on someone to meet our needs for survival. But this person also routinely betrays our trust. And we learned that we both need people, but that relationships with people create a sense of ambivalence or fear inside of us because either we feel like we're alone or because there is some sort of abuse happening or because just the unpredictability of it leaves us feeling like we're in this fight-or-flight mode. Another way this can happen is with addictions. So let's imagine that you have a parent that is an alcoholic to deal with, again, their own earlier trauma. Alcoholism develops not just out of the blue, it's usually there as a numbing mechanism, and then there's also a shame mechanism that kind of makes the cycle continue to happen. So they reach for alcohol. It feels good. It numbs some of the emotions, some of the feeling of unworthiness, some of the lack of control they feel in their life. But then they feel shame about needing to rely on that. And it like fuels this kind of vicious cycle. But let's say that sometimes your mom and dad would come home tipsy and happy and singing and warm and like silly and fun. But sometimes they would come home drunk and angry or like, let's say sometimes they were trying to get sober and they were going through withdrawals and they were really cranky and angry and um, short. But then maybe after a few days and they had gotten more sober, they were more stable and warm and loving. Or let's say your parents had a really tumultuous relationship with one another and one or both of them were cheating on each other all of the time then there might've been a lot of fighting. There might've been a lot of like anger between your parents, which translated to the children in the household as well. So even if your parents were super loving to you, if there was a lot of fighting between them, it may have felt really chaotic and you never knew when, you know, angry outbursts were going to happen and your parents were going to go at it with each other and feel, and you would feel really unsafe. And maybe even partly responsible for what was going on because that magical thinking, that feeling of I'm responsible and the world revolves around me is very common for human development for children under the age of five. So they really do believe the world revolves around me and things happen because of me. Because they're still in the middle of establishing a personal identity and learning, like, the rules of cause and effect. When children are in this state of never knowing which parent they're going to get, and if their parent is going to be in Mr. Hyde mode, they're constantly in a state of fight or flight, which hinders normal emotional development. And because they can't fight the parent, they're not big enough to do that, right? And they can't flee. They often dissociate from their feelings of anger or fear. They deny the abuse and they blame themselves for the problems in the relationship. Like I said, they feel like everything happens because of them. So it feels safer to put blame on themselves. And it also feels safer to put blame on themselves because they can control their own behavior. This is kind of what happens with avoidance styles, right? I can control me, but I can't control all of you. So I will take personal responsibility for me because I know that I can make myself show up for myself. And that's really what's going on here for the fearful avoidant as well is they're starting to internalize a lot of these things and feel like, okay, I can control me. And if I take the blame for this, I can control that as well because their parent feels totally unpredictable and out of control. But you might see somebody that turns to really controlling their eating their schedule, their personal environment has a way to feel less chaotic inside of themselves. So I can't control the chaos in my home, but I can control how much I eat or I can control you know, my schedule. I can control my personal belongings. So you might see some tendencies towards OCD happening. You might see some eating disorders happening, and we might start to become like really controlling in aspects of our own life. This doesn't mean we become controlling of others necessarily, but we become maybe really controlling of ourselves. So some common traits of disorganized attachment, we've already kind of talked about some of these. I'm going to pull from some information from Heidi Preeb, and if you have not heard of Heidi Priebe, HeidiPreeb.com, she's got all kinds of great resources. I really like the way that she discusses attachment styles because she compares and contrasts them. And it's been really helpful for me. I still don't fully know what childhood attachment style I had, and I may never know, and that's okay. What has been helpful is getting curious about how I'm showing up now with different people in my life because I do have several secure attachments where I feel very safe being an individual having needs, having thoughts that are different, uh, being able to negotiate what's okay with me and what's not okay with me, having boundaries. And I'm able to resolve conflicts with people in a way that's healthy and feels like a win-win for both of us. That's what secure attachment is. It's not this place where we don't have conflict anymore. It's the ability to navigate together what works for both of us without one of us feeling like we're being swallowed by the other one. So we both get to maintain a sense of autonomy and we both are willing to be flexible so that we can connect. But then there are other people in my life that I do show up in an avoidant way with. And I'm still getting curious about that, why that happens and what secure attachment with people in my life might look like who maybe haven't done their own work yet. And is that even possible? Those are questions I'm asking myself that I don't have answers to yet. And I think the answer to that is yes. The more I'm exploring it, the more I'm like, I believe the answer to that is yes. And we're going to be talking about that here on the podcast here in a little bit as we start to talk about relationships, because I think it's really important for us to recognize that I can maintain a secure attachment with myself and boundaries, and I can you know, move into relationships or move through relationships with people who have different attachment styles without losing my sense of self or without, you know, having to cut them off completely. There can be a middle ground. I I feel like I'm still looking for that middle ground. It's not a place where I feel like I have like some really firm answers, but I'm researching it and I feel like I've been trying things on now for, you know, five or six years and i found some things that have worked and some that haven't and we're going to just kind of talk about that i'm going to see if i can find some experts who would be willing to sit and talk about relationships and different attachment styles and like maintaining this healthy sense of self when we're in relationships with others who maybe who maybe don't have that that strong sense of self or who maybe have a very strong sense of self but kind of lack that ability for connection like how do we navigate those things So that'll be coming. But for now, let's just talk about the traits of disorganized attachment. So the very first trait is one we've already talked about. You crave intimacy desperately, but you deeply fear it at the same time. Unlike avoidant attachment styles who can seem cold or aloof throughout the relationship, FAs show up in relationships with a lot of warmth and vulnerability and even emotional intensity. The thing that happens is they usually have some enmeshment history from their younger childhood, which means that they learned that when they're in relationship, it means giving up their independence and their sense of self, and that they have to give endlessly to the other person. So they're like people, people who really enjoy connecting and giving to others, but they're also deeply afraid of losing their sense of self. And so because of this... They kind of make a subconscious deal with themselves that they're going to go into relationships and like get that hit of intimacy and connection that they crave, but they also have to make a deal with themselves that they're not going to stay long term so that they don't fully lose themselves. And this can kind of lead to this like hot and cold, on again, off again, activated, deactivated sort of dynamic. And it kind of feels like a yo-yo feeling inside of relationships. Because the person with disorganized attachment has two needs that fill in conflict with one another. They need to connect and they feel this need to retain a sense of self. And it hasn't occurred to them, it hasn't been modeled for them, that you can have relationships where you feel connected and seen and you retain a sense of self. What's been modeled for them is either I'm in relationship and I get swallowed whole. There can be no me. I don't get to have needs. I have to give and give and give and give. Or I can be detached and I can have a sense of self, but I can't have relationships. And so they vacillate between the two because they have a need for both, a strong need for both. So they often look at relationships as short-term solutions to long-term emotional pain or a need for intimacy. Now, where this differs from the anxiously attached person is the anxiously attached person, when they get into relationship, they feel a sense of relief when they begin to merge with someone else. It feels comforting to them to kind of lose themselves in this other person's identity and to allow this other person to kind of dictate what's okay and what's not okay, the pace of the relationship, the likes and dislikes. But for a fearful avoidant, person they start to miss their sense of identity and who they were outside of the relationship and because of this they can often have patterns of lots of short-term relationships so the best movie example i have of the fearful avoidant attachment style in this way is julia roberts character from the runaway bride and it talks about how she's a man eater but she's not She wants to be loving and kind and connective. She needs that like validation that comes from attachment. And she's deeply worried about losing her sense of self. Every time she tries to walk down the aisle, she realizes she would be living a lie that she has completely given her identity over to the other person. The wedding is what the groom wants. The honeymoon is what the groom wants. The way she takes her eggs, the things that she does for fun, she completely melds her life with the other person. But then she gets to a place where she realizes, like, I can't do this. I would lose myself. I wouldn't be happy. And then she runs down the aisle. This is kind of what is happening for the fearful avoidant attachment style. There is that sense of security that almost comes with being attached to someone. There is this longing To find somebody that fully sees you and loves you and knows you, but the only way you know how to be in relationships is to give up your identity. And then that feels scary because you've learned that you can't fully trust people to take care of your needs. You've learned that you're not allowed to voice your needs. So of course the other person isn't taking care of your needs. And eventually it feels scary and you start to realize my needs will never get met. And so you run, kind of like the runaway bride. The second common trait of disorganized attachment is you ricochet between overtaking responsibility and undertaking responsibility for conflict in a relationship. And this has to do with swinging back and forth between the anxious attachment style and the avoidant attachment style. So you either feel like it's all your fault or you feel like it's all the other person's fault. There's a lot of like all or nothing thinking that's happening here, which as you already know is Highly correlated with high-demand religion, and that can probably exacerbate a fearful avoidance style if that's something that you already have, feeling like it's all or nothing. So what happens is when you're in the avoidant style, avoidant people are highly responsible for their own feelings and emotions and for their own personal reality. So if you're having conflict with a person and you're a fearful avoidant, but you're in your kind of avoidant place, you're going to be taking radical responsibility for your part. You may feel like it's all your fault because you were emotionally reactive or whatever in the moment. And you're going to be strategizing about how you can avoid that in the future. And sometimes that might look like strategizing how to cut the other person out of your life. But you don't stay in that place like an avoidant person would. You're going to become activated again at some point, either because you're with the person you're in relationship with or they're going to say or do something that makes you feel like you're, you know, attached again. And you're going to get back in kind of that anxious, preoccupied attachment style where you're more in your emotions, but it feels like your emotions are a direct result of what other people do. And so it's kind of like your brain is split right down the middle. And sometimes you're in the part of your brain that takes radical responsibility and feels like what other people do has no bearing on how you feel. And so you're fully responsible for what happens in your life, but you have no access to the emotional part of yourself that understands why you do things from this highly emotional place. And then when you're activated again, you swing back into your emotional self that really wants other people to be a part of their life, but also feels like it's your outer environment that dictates your emotions and that you don't have any personal responsibility for that. So you kind of swing back and forth between these two pieces of yourself that don't communicate with one another. And what happens is you might actually have an inner dialogue that wonders if you yourself are the abusive person. Or if you're being abused. So when you're in your anxious attachment style, you may wonder if you're being abused. Like our relationship is really tumultuous. The relationship feels kind of toxic. And I feel really bad here. So you must be an abusive person. Or whenever they're in their avoidant place, they can feel like I'm completely in control of my emotions. I freaked out. I don't understand why I did that. It's really confusing because an F.A. is going to experience both, right? They're going to have huge emotional reactions. And maybe even just a few seconds later, we'll flip back into their avoidance style and look at that behavior and be like, why did I do that? That was ridiculous. I have more control than that. What they said shouldn't have affected me or what I was saying and doing was really manipulative or calculating. And they go back and forth between being very emotional but not very self-aware and being self-aware but not very emotional and they can judge the emotional side of themselves but feel like maybe they're the abuser or maybe they're the toxic person and I really hate the idea of a toxic person. I think that there are people who engage in a lot of toxic behaviors, but I like to separate behavior out from people. And the reason I like to do that is because the more I can separate behavior out from another person's worthiness, the more I can do that for myself. So if there's someone in your life that you feel like is toxic, I find just tweaking that language to their behavior is toxic, it gives us just a little bit of room to allow empathy and compassion for the person while still protecting ourselves from the behavior. And I think it also gives us the opportunity to separate ourselves out from our behavior because we retain our worthiness, our lovability, our acceptability as a person, even when we're engaging in toxic behaviors. That doesn't mean that people will want to engage with us. When we're engaging in a lot of toxic behaviors, we might get a lot of people that avoid us because the behavior is hard to tolerate, but that doesn't mean we as people are not lovable and acceptable. It does mean we might have to take ownership for our behavior and do some reprogramming, but we are not our behavior. We are the human underneath the thoughts and beliefs and emotions and behaviors, and we retain worth regardless. So I find that separating out people from behavior, so there can be toxic relationships, there can be toxic behavior, but I really hate calling people toxic because I I just don't believe in that. Even with sociopaths, they have very toxic ways of engaging with the world, but it's likely because of something that happened in their past that made them develop those behaviors in order to feel safe or in control in the world. I don't know why that felt so necessary to say, but there it is. Now, the third trait is perhaps you don't feel deserving of a healthy relationship. You might have a subconscious belief that you're bad and that you're not deserving of healthy love. And again, this is one of the reasons I think that I talk so much about separating out toxic behavior from toxic people, because I think a lot of us have this internalized belief when we come from high-demand religion or from, you know, traumatic backgrounds that we are toxic, that there is something wrong with us, and that we don't deserve love and belonging. Now, anxious attachment styles may also struggle with a sense of low self-worth, so they might not feel as desirable, perhaps, as other people, but they believe they have something of value to offer. They're like, you know, I'm warm and cuddly, and anyone would be lucky for me to love on them the way I do. And the avoidantly attached person believes that while they might not be able to offer somebody deep emotional connection, that they're a stable, reliable, high-achieving catch, and they have something to offer in relationships. However, remember, the fearful avoidant person believes not only that they are bad, but that other people are bad. And because they're aware of how volatile their relationships are. And because they're very aware that they are manipulating others emotionally sometimes, they begin to see themselves as the common denominator. And they begin to believe like, I am bad. I ruin lives. I'm toxic. And I shouldn't be with a healthy person. And they have enough awareness to see that they're part of the pattern, but not enough awareness to recognize that they engage in these patterns for self-protection, not because they have bad intentions. So this, again, I think is why I kept talking about separating out the toxic behavior from the person, because when we can understand, I engage in this behavior for self-protection. This is not who I am. This is something I learned in order to protect myself. We can do something about that. When I'm the problem, then it's harder to deal with the problem because it's me. And how do I become different if the problem is fundamentally just who I am? So again, we're going back to that shame and guilt thing. Guilt is I did something bad. Shame is I am bad. We're trying to separate those things. We engage in harmful behaviors sometimes. All of the attachment styles do occasionally, even securely attached people, occasionally will engage in harm. Maybe not intentionally, but we all hurt others sometimes accidentally or intentionally we all do it sometimes and it doesn't necessarily make us bad people when we can understand our behaviors are there for a reason and we can change the beliefs behind those behaviors it can help us begin to feel worthy of a healthy relationship so yeah you might have had a lot of toxic relationships in your past You may have had some really tumultuous romantic relationships or friendships or family relationships. That doesn't mean you have to continue having them. And even though you're a common denominator, it's not who you are that is the common denominator. It's the patterns you learned that are the common denominator. And so get curious with the patterns you learned. And this goes for all the attachment styles get curious with the patterns you learned so that you can. Get curious with the beliefs and the thoughts that are underneath them and change the beliefs and thoughts, which will change your emotions and the way you show up. Because so often, what happens is we learned a certain dialogue when we were very young children before we were verbal. We learned that this is how you react and this is how you engage with other people. And that story has carried with us throughout our life. Perhaps your stories are, I am bad people will betray me, I can't trust other people, Um, whatever your stories are, those stories, what's happening is we're carrying them subconsciously and then we are creating self-fulfilling prophecies a lot of the time. This is true if you have repeating patterns, not if it's just happened once or twice, but if you have a repeating pattern of a certain thing happening in your relationships over and over again, the chances are very high that you're carrying a subconscious story and then you are fulfilling that prophecy over and over again because you're filtering the other person's behavior through that belief that's creating emotions for you. And that emotion is affecting the way you react in that relationship. And it may just be affecting the people you decide to spend time with. Maybe you continue to choose a certain kind of person So if you're anxiously attached, you might continue to choose a person who is avoidantly attached, who cannot give you the intimacy and closeness that you crave because the story inside of you is that people don't meet my needs. So you keep choosing people who don't meet your needs because they don't know how. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy over and over again. Everyone out there, doesn't meet my needs. I meet everyone else's needs, but no one else meets my needs. And if you're avoidantly attached, you might be choosing anxiously attached people that are super clingy. And you keep that story in your head that if I have relationships with people, they will eat me alive. They will be vampiric and suck the life force out of me. They're going to try to take away my individuality. They're going to try to take over my identity And you might choose people that that is their natural coping mechanism over and over and over again. And it just fulfills the prophecy you already have in your head. So be aware of that, that if you have repeating patterns, it's not because you're bad. It's not because you're toxic. It's because you might have some behaviors that are magnetizing either the wrong people to you or you're engaging With people in a way that fulfills that prophecy. The fourth trait you might have as a fearful avoidant person is you want other people to be vulnerable before you are. Now remember the core belief here is either, not and, but either I can keep my sense of emotional gravity inside of myself like an avoidant attached style or I can hand it over to someone else like an anxiously attached style. And if they decide to hand over their sense of emotional gravity, their emotional center to someone else, they want to make sure that that person isn't going to hurt them. And because of this, what's going to happen is the fearful avoidant is going to be very guarded with the information they share. This doesn't mean that they're cold or aloof, kind of like an avoidant is, They can be very warm and caring. They're really good about asking other people questions about themselves, being very curious about other people, listening. Fearful avoidance have some amazing skills. They're very good at creating this like warm, compassionate, uh, understanding sort of atmosphere so that people feel comfortable spilling their guts. However, what's going to happen is the person that you're in conversation with is going to feel like, oh my gosh, that felt so good. I felt so deeply connected. But then, as they walk away, they're going to realize you didn't share much about yourself. And this happens for a couple of reasons. First one is is that fearful avoidance are always aware of power dynamics. Who has more power in this situation? Because they've learned it's a dog eat dog world, and that the people with the most power can hurt you and take advantage of you. So. Without realizing it, usually very subconsciously, they are collecting your most intimate details almost as collateral so that when they decide to open up, they have enough on you that they're pretty sure you're not going to betray them. The other way that a fearful avoidant might actually feel comfortable opening up and being vulnerable is if they know that you are way more invested in the relationship than they are. So if they feel like they can kind of take you or leave you, but you are like, this is my person, I need this person in my life, they might be more willing to open up because you're less likely to betray them because you wouldn't want to risk abandonment by them. This has a lot to do with the power dynamics that fearful avoidance are always subconsciously scanning. They're always scanning like, what do I have that other people want? And what do other people have that I want? It's a very exchange kind of oriented relationship. And it really does describe why a fearful avoidant might feel way more comfortable with certain people than with other people. So if you feel more comfortable around people that you perceive as having less power, less influence, um, or less of the things that you want, but they really want the things that you have, get curious with that. And if you find yourself feeling really uncomfortable or self-conscious or just like shut down around people that you perceive as more powerful or who have something that you want, maybe not to an equal extent of them wanting what you have, just get curious. I know that was really convoluted. My language there was not great, but get curious with that, the dynamics, the power dynamics of who you hang out with. The next tip that you might have fearful avoidant attachment is rationality and emotion are unintegrated for you. And we've already talked about this. Like sometimes you are very rational and logical, but you can also be a very emotional and reactive person, but you don't do these at the same time. So again, it feels like that Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde sort of a situation, whether it's on the outside with your behavior or whether that's all internal. So again, you're switching between making decisions as a anxiously attached person who's very emotionally reactive or from the place of an avoidantly attached person who's very logical and calculating and not attached to emotions at all. It, it really does feel like you can be two people sometimes. And learning to heal this part of yourself is gonna look like pausing because usually what happens is you're either... Making decisions as the avoidantly attached piece of yourself, or you're making decisions from this like passionate emotional side of yourself, and they don't communicate together. And it can lead you to feel like you can't trust yourself because what's happening is let's say you're making a business decision or a relationship decision, you might be making that promise from one part of yourself, and you don't know if it's that part that's going to be there when it's time to deliver or if it's gonna be the other part of yourself. And that can feel really scary and like, and it can develop this sense that you can't trust yourself. So one way that we can heal this is learning to pause, giving ourselves opportunities to pause and practice integrating logic and emotion. So getting curious about what do I think about this? What are the pros and cons? Doing all those things, that avoidant-attached people are very good at, right? Like going through the laundry list of pros and cons, what's going to benefit me the most, long-term, short-term, all of that. But then making sure that you integrate emotions. So do not make decisions when you are feeling very emotional, but also not when you're feeling very, very like logical and detached from your emotions. And learn to integrate the two of those pieces of ourselves, which is what securely-attached people do. They use their logic and their emotions to make decisions that are for their well-being now and in the future. And they might make concessions. Like, for instance, I'm about to start a master's degree. I start in May. I'm really excited. There is a piece of me that loves freedom, that loves flexibility, and that is part of my emotional self, right? I love freedom and flexibility, and I love the opportunity to study whatever interests me at the time. And I will be giving up some of that in order to pursue this master's degree for the next 20 months. However, as I've weighed the pros and cons and taken into account, like the way I'm going to feel emotionally when I'm stuck in a class that I find really boring is learning to like listen to those pieces of myself and even kind of plan ahead, right? So talking to the emotional part of myself, that's like, you want freedom. I know you do. You want freedom and flexibility and this is this feels a little bit more rigid here's what we're going to do in the short term to make sure that you get that feeling of freedom and flexibility which is also part of the reason i will be taking 2 weeks off after this i'm going to be thinking through some of these things with both parts of myself and making sure that i'm making decisions that feel right right now and giving myself permission to revisit some of those decisions right as we as we go along i will still be podcasting don't worry i'm not going anywhere but This is what I'm doing right now and how I'm practicing this principle is giving myself time to sit and integrate these two pieces of myself and make sure that the emotional part of me will be happy and cared for, as well as the very independent, achieving, logical part of me that has wanted this degree for a very, very long time. So I will be doing both um, and taking a couple of weeks to do that before the next podcast. And deciding, you know, what changes to my schedule need to be made so that this emotional part of myself that wants the freedom and wants that flexibility and is kind of a free spirit, like wild child, how I can take care of her while we're doing this very structured thing. And we'll continue to revisit this together and figure out what what meets all of our needs. Now, the next trait that fearful avoidance have can be a huge positive. You read other people really easily, and this can be a huge benefit to those of us who grew up with this style in all kinds of areas of life, even though it came from a maladaptive place. You learned early on that people aren't always honest with their words, and you needed to read minute facial expressions and tones of voice in order to decipher the real meaning underneath the words. Also, because FAs have access to both anxious and avoidant sides of their attachment style, They're often aware of when they're being manipulative or strategic, and they're more comfortable admitting that to themselves. When they're in that avoidant place, they can look at the anxious side of themselves and be like, oh, I was being kind of manipulative or strategic there. I was being really dramatic in order to get that response and that connection. And what this does is it makes it easier for them to see that in others as well. In fact, I would say there's probably many FAs putting this skill to use in the religious deconstructing world by being able to point out duplicitous and manipulative behavior in religious leaders. They're able to read facial expressions. They're able to read between the lines. They're able to notice when manipulation is happening. And there are some amazing content out there in the deconstruction community that I would not be surprised to find is being put together by people who had a childhood fearful avoidant attachment style. So there are some huge skills and benefits that come with being fearful avoidant because they're really great at figuring out what power dynamics are at play and what people's motivations are and why or when people might lie, as well as what delusions people might have about themselves because they have access to both sides of the spectrum inside of themselves. Now, ironically, the only people that FAs have a really hard time reading are people who are securely attached because remember, they believe that every relationship has a power struggle and that everybody has an angle. So the fearful avoidant has a really hard time figuring out what the strategy or game plan is the securely attached person is using because the securely attached person doesn't have a game plan. They're just showing up authentically. They're not trying to manipulate or massage the relationship in a way that puts them in the power seat or that benefits them perhaps more than the other person. It's it's The securely attached person is coming at this from a place of I'm worthy and valuable and so are you and we'll find a way to cooperate together. So cooperation hasn't really Occurred to the fearful avoidant because early on they were taught you had to have a strategy to survive interpersonal relationships. Like you couldn't go into a relationship with another person without a strategy, or you would be eaten alive or you would be neglected. So it's really hard for an FA to believe that a securely attached person doesn't have a strategy or to trust their intentions. Another trait that fearful avoidance can have is you might constantly chase highs. And I don't mean drug highs. I mean highs of all kinds, achievements, um, skydiving, uh, a new relationship, a new sexual conquest. It could also be a high of the chemical variety. So here's why this happens. So anxiously attached people and fearful avoidance both put themselves into emotionally volatile situations because it feels exciting and it brings an emotional response, which feels good to both fearful avoidance and to anxiously attach people. So they get themselves in these really volatile emotional situations. And I don't mean feels good as in you get good emotions, but it feels exciting, it is activating, it makes them feel alive, even if the emotions are grief or sadness or anger. However, what happens is anxiously attached people will go to loved ones and ask for support and they will get people to love on them and care for them. But fearful avoidance don't trust other people to do that. That feels scary for them to be vulnerable in that way. So they do what avoidant people do and they like try to deal with it on their own. But avoidant people, they don't put themselves into as as many emotionally volatile situations so their kind of strategy of stuffing things and just kind of like being emotionally numb works for them but it doesn't work for the fearful avoidant because they've got all these big feelings and they just went through something emotionally volatile but they can't turn to other people so what they do is they turn to an experience that will give them a high to balance out the extreme low So a couple of the examples that Heidi Pre brought up is like after a huge breakup, being like, oh, I've got to go travel Europe for six months and find myself. Or you might set a huge, extremely ambitious goal and pour all of your energy into chasing this huge, ambitious goal or something similar. So just get curious with that in yourself. Like, do you find yourself chasing highs in order to kind of offset really difficult feelings or tumultuous emotions that maybe you experienced? And then the last trait is you love hard, but you struggle to make room for relationships. And this is really because you crave control a lot like the avoidant style does. You feel fine on your own. In fact, most of the time when you're on your own, you're like, oh, yeah, I'm good. Things are fine. I'm healthy. And it's when you're in relationship with others that you start to feel kind of emotionally crazy or like there's suddenly emotional struggle in your life. So if that's happening, if you feel like when I'm on my own, things are fine, and then I get in relationships, and then suddenly there's all this stress and drama, it might be a sign that you have a fearful avoidant attachment style, especially if like you're really craving that hit of intimacy. Like when you're alone, you feel fine. Things are great, but there's still that longing inside of you of, you know, I just want to find somebody. But every time you get together with someone, it feels really tumultuous. That, that could be a really good hint that you might have some fearful avoidance going on. And when you do look for relationships, you look for relationships where you won't have to make any concessions. So you might go along with things for a while, but at some point when you realize things are getting serious or intimate, you're gonna be like, okay, here's the deal. We've been together for a while, but now that we're together, you need to know I'm not budging on this, 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 and this. It has to be this way for me to feel safe. So, if you find yourself really craving that intimacy, but then when you feel like you're getting intimate, you either sabotage the relationship so that you can get out, or you set these really strict boundaries about what is and is not okay in order for the relationship to feel safe, it may be a sign of fearful avoidance. Now, like I said earlier in the podcast, attachment styles are learned. We were not born with our attachment style, they were a part of the way that we were cared for and nurtured when we were very young infants. And the attachment styles happened by us having the same experience multiple times. And we learned each time as our neurons wired and fired together, we built these neural pathways of when this happens, this is what I must do to keep myself safe. And we just learned that that was a subconscious pattern for how we engaged in relationships. And the cool thing is, in the last decade, we've learned that our brains are incredibly plastic. And anything we've learned, we can unlearn and reprogram. We can learn something new. As we create new behaviors, new thoughts, new beliefs, new emotions, and we practice them over and over again, eventually what happens is we create a new neural pathway and the old one dies from disuse this week as you're looking at your attachment style really get curious with patterns of behavior in your relationships do you have a pattern is there something that seems to always happen in your relationship then backtrack to the next piece what behaviors might you be engaging in that create that pattern in your relationship Just get curious with it. Remember, your behaviors are not who you are. You remain worthy of love and belonging regardless of what you find about your behaviors and your thoughts and your beliefs. You are not a monster. You're not a toxic person. You are a human doing your best to keep yourself safe and survive. And once you realize that you're safe and that there's another way to get those needs met that maybe will get you more of what you want in your relationships, you can change your behavior. Now, the next thing is after you recognize the behaviors that are happening, trace it back to the thoughts and emotions you had before you engaged in those behaviors. What thoughts did you have? What behavior did the other person engage in and how did you interpret that? And then what emotions did you have that led you to behave in the way that you did? What were you afraid of? What did you think would happen if you didn't behave in the way you did? And is this a repeating pattern? And then from there, trace it back to your beliefs. What beliefs do you have that is leading to these thoughts and these emotions? Just get curious with it. See what you discover. And please come and talk with us about it on the weekly calls. Even while I'm taking my two-week break for the next couple of weeks, we're still going to be having the Wednesday call and talking about things. Really let this sit. This is a lot of work. This isn't going to be something that you completely discover in one week or two weeks or even maybe a year. But you're going to discover things about yourself as you continue to be open and curious and look for patterns and figure out what's underneath those patterns. You can do this and it's going to make a huge difference in your life. And you're going to feel safer in your relationships and you're going to be better able to communicate your needs both to yourself and to others. It's going to take practice, but you've got this, and I can't wait to talk about it with you on Wednesday. And I will see you not this upcoming Sunday, but three Sundays from now. Thank you all for listening, and I will see you on Sunday, April 30th.